Well, thank you all who did participate in Community Serve Day for us. Uh, as we do that every year, there's, uh, you know, some people ask, and I know other friends who are pastors, like, are you sure you take a Sunday off? You're going to miss out on, you're going to lose momentum, you're going to, and all of those things, right? But we think, no, of course, this is our way of worship, worshiping God through acts of service, and we want to love our city, we want to love our community well. So thank you all for participating and being a part of that. Um, it really is a fun day. I know some of you say, why can't we do that every week? Well, that's a little too much, but... Uh, you can serve throughout the week, just once a week we, or once a year we take a, that break and it was so fun to serve with all of you. I was on, I, you know, I always have the hard team, uh, I get to visit all the sites and everyone's like, why aren't you doing anything, right? I'm, like, I'm just, you know, kissing babies saying thank you for, but it was actually such a joy for me to see all of you out there serving and just with such joy and I loved that we had a pretty wide range of the age spectrum serving together. Isn't that kind of cool to be able to see everyone from just this really young age to much more mature age and uh, together loving our city well. So thank you for that. We're still, uh, we'll share some of the stories and uh, messages that are coming in, but uh, in general, uh, we, every year when we just get such positive feedback and just so people are blown away that a church would take time to love them. So thank you for doing what you do uh, with that. Uh, let's pray as we start off our morning. God, we thank you so much for this time and I thank you for your word, I thank you for this church. I thank you for each person here who's willing to uh, walk a walk of, of faith with you and, and give up their time to serve and to love the city well, to love neighbors, to love friends. Uh, Lord, we know we are transformed on the inside so that we can make a difference on the outside. And so I thank you even for the tangible ways that we can do that together and for the encouragement that each person is here to me. And uh, so we pray, Lord, now as we look into your word, would you transform and change us more and more into your likeness and your image? We surrender this time to you. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to invite you to open your Bibles to the book of John chapter 2. We are in John chapter 2 today, and uh, we are going through a series uh, uh, called the book of John, and uh, because we're going through the book of John. So that's what we're doing, and uh, so we're in John chapter 2 today. We've been in it for a few weeks now, and uh, today we're going to hear and read about a story uh, that's not recorded in the other accounts of Jesus's life. So again, in the New Testament, there's the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Gospel essentially is the message of Jesus, the good news about Jesus. And according to John, we're going to read a story, a, a miracle that takes place that we don't see anywhere else. And it's one of those miracles that if you've heard this story before, maybe it just kind of goes over your head or you hear it and you say, oh, that's kind of cool. But when you really think about it, it seems like an arbitrary thing that just happened. It seems like, what's the point of this miracle? It wasn't, we're not going to read about someone uh, receiving their sight or being able to walk if they couldn't walk before or anything that we would typically pray for that is happening in this miracle. But as is often the case with Jesus, the act that we see him perform today is actually making a profound statement about something. And what we're going to see here today is that uh, this miracle, where we're going is we're going to see that this first miracle is that Jesus performs that we're going to read about is a statement about a couple things. First thing is this, the insufficiency of religion. You're going to see that today. 
So he, this miracle, it, it doesn't seem to be doing anything unique, or, or it's unique, but there's nothing profound that's happening, again, that someone's praying for, but he's going to make a statement about the insufficiency of religion. The second thing we're going to see is it's a, a statement about the abundance of life that Jesus is going to offer to all of us. So in this act, again, he doesn't do things that, for no reason. There's a purpose to it, and that's where we're going to go and see that today. So jump in with me to John chapter 2, and let's read about this miracle. And if you're familiar with Scripture, maybe you're already thinking through, trying to figure out which one we're going to talk about. If this is all new to you, well then, good, it's all new to you. So John chapter 2. On the third day, and as he says the third day, this is actually a continuation of the narrative from chapter one, where he's kind of talking about this whole week of, this first week of meeting Jesus. It says, on the third day, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there, and both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding. So now we have, uh, the, the scene that we have here is Jesus, his disciples are going to this wedding. Canaan, uh, Cana is kind of south of the Lake of Galilee. Uh, we learned last week that one of the disciples is actually from that town. Um, they're all going to this wedding. Jesus' mom is there. So we assume must be some sort of family friend or family member, whoever it is, they're going to a wedding. Now, we want to stop there for a moment because you have to know, a wedding in Jewish culture is a very big deal. Now, it's a big deal in every culture. We get it. Those of you who are young adults, you're in the season of weddings, right? Many of you uh, have, have been to weddings, been going to a lot of weddings. It's kind of interesting when you get past that phase and all of a sudden you haven't been to one in a while. That's when you know you're getting old. So, but it, it, weddings are a huge deal in the Jewish culture. Big celebrations. And often they weren't just one afternoon. It's a multi-day celebration. And they knew how to enjoy and celebrate the weddings. In fact, to this day, any of you who have Jewish friends, maybe you grew up in a Jew with a Jewish background, you know that they celebrate well. Uh, I had some friends in college who, uh, one of them worked at a, a hotel. This is back in the day when receptions were always at like the hotel banquet room or something like that. You remember? Now they're always in cool places, but um, like under an oak tree in the nice lights. But back then they used to be in hotels or, and, and things like that. Ours was in an officer's club is where our reception was. And uh, so, but he worked in one of those and they, uh, so he knew when the wedding receptions would come and he and his friend were the kind of the original wedding crashers. They, they would look at, oh, there's a wedding coming up. We're college kids. Let's drop, drop in, get some food, get some drinks. And, and back then, it's like nobody knows who you're with. So you could usually go in there and get some food. And then they would rate them based on how good the wedding was. And they had a rating scale that was based on which religions had the best weddings. And the Jewish weddings, they said, are always the best. And any of you, if any of you grew up in a Nazarene background... Sorry to say, you were last place. So, they just said cake and mints. That's all you got. Um, but but uh, so, they, they celebrated. They, they knew, they said even to this day, the celebrations are big. So, in the time of Jesus, weddings mattered. In fact, so much so that Jesus uses the analogy of a wedding uh, to talk about the kingdom of God. In fact, in Matthew chapter 22, he compares the kingdom of God to a wedding feast and one that we need to be ready for. In Revelation chapter 19, verse 9, it actually says this, uh, is, is God's writing. He says, write down this, blessed are those who are invited to the wedding feast of the Lamb. 
he said to me, these are the true words of God. So blessed are all who are invited to the wedding feast. So we have in in scripture this picture of weddings being this place, this wonderful celebration. So when Jesus and his mom and his disciples are at this wedding, this is a big deal. This is a celebration. There's something profound going on. And Jesus goes to it. So he's a normal person. That's great. Now, verse 3. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no more wine. (laughs) And Jesus says to her, what business do you have with me, woman? My hour has not yet come. Time out. (laughs) Young people, our, our teenagers, this is, do not model Jesus in this place and say to your mom, what business does it, do you have with me, woman? This is, don't take this to heart here. We're going to tr- translate that in a moment. But isn't this an interesting thing? They're at a wedding and the wine runs out and the mother of Jesus goes over to him and says, hey, we're out of wine. Now think of this. If in your culture, hosting a wedding is a big deal, it's a multi-day event, If you run out of food or you run out of wine, it doesn't look so good for the host, does it? All of a sudden, the host is thinking, what are we going to do? And my wife uh, used to do some wedding planning, and uh, one of the things you have to balance is is every once in a while you have a caterer who underplanned for the wedding and and the reception, and, and trying to balance that and thinking, you never want to run out of something. So here they are, they're running out of wine. Now, let me just say this. Some people have tried to make this into more than it is. Some people say like, well, that's because Jesus brought his disciples and they weren't expecting them. And and, and those guys could throw down some wine or something like that. We we don't have any idea. We we assume that everyone who's there was expected to be there. They were invited. It could have been an economic thing. It could have been who knows. But whatever it was, they're out of wine. And the host is facing potential embarrassment. And the mother of Jesus goes to Jesus and says, we're out of wine. That's all she says. And he responds, what business do you have with me? Now, let me just talk about the word woman for a moment, just before you think, well, that's kind of rude. Uh, This is the best translation we have that we can bring it from from the Greek to this is translated like madam. And, And so it's a polite term, but it's not necessarily, it's not a term of endearment. So he's not looking at his mom, and it's not an affectionate term, but it's a polite, respectful term. And so it's interesting that he's saying this to his mother. And really what we have here is this whole sentence, there's something different going on. Now, I have to also say, the Greek does not say, what business do you have with me? This was a colloquial phrase. This was a phrase that we've translated. Essentially, it just says, hey, you, or what of you and me? That is the literal Greek here. And, and so they translate, it's just an idiom that means like, hey, what, you're think, what matters to you is not what really matters to me right now. And so he says, hey, what matters to you? We don't have the same thing that we're thinking about right now, ma'am. My hour has not yet come. And so what we really have is what Jesus is doing is there's a statement being made here that Jesus is actually indicating, and the writer John is letting us know from here that Jesus is no longer about his earthly parents' business. 
that he is now saying, what you are concerned of, I can only be concerned of the business of my heavenly father. So that's why he's not saying mother. He actually calls her ma'am. He's making a break, a distinction here. Now he's not, and we have other places in scripture where he says, who are my mother? Who is my brothers and sisters? He's not saying he's no longer related, but essentially what he's saying is our relationship is different. My wife and I are in the phase where a couple of our kids are in that young adult phase now, and we are going through the same thing where we're looking at our kids get older, and they have to make their own choices. They're living their own lives, and it's super easy to let them do that. So, <laughs> and really, though, the goal of a parent is this. If we could say, we want you now to be about your heavenly father's business, more than about ours, that's, that's a win. And that's our prayer, and that's our hope, and that's where we want as parents to get our kids to the point where they're about the heavenly Father's business. And here we have Jesus essentially saying, now my hour has not yet come, what you're asking me, but we, I'm no longer, we're not on the same page in the sense of now I'm about the heavenly Father's business. And in the book of John, we have a couple other instances, three other chapters where Jesus talks about only what the Father does, I will do. Look at this in John chapter 5, verse 19. Jesus says this. He says, Truly I say to you, the Son of Man, or the Son, can do nothing of himself unless it is something he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, these things the Son also does in the same way. So this is the beginning here in chapter 2 is the beginning of where we really start to get insight into what Jesus is going to be about is what God the Father is about. And the things that God the Father does, Jesus is going to do in the same way. So that's a hint at what is about to happen at this wedding is something that I believe Jesus is saying, I am going to be in tune with the heavenly Father, not with my earthly mother. So let's go back into John chapter 2, verse 5. So he says, what business do we have with each other, woman or madam? (laughs) And his mother responds and says to the servants, whatever he tells you to do, do it. Isn't that an interesting response? He says, hey, we... Our business, we, we might not be on the same page. She looks at the servants like, just listen to him. Which I think this is some of the greatest advice in scripture right here. Whatever Jesus tells you to do, do it. That's great advice. (laughs) Now, some people think, what's going going on here? Did she just totally ignore Jesus? She's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) Or what was she saying is, I trust that whatever the Heavenly Father reveals to you is going to be good. And we're going to accept that. So whatever God the Father wants to do in this situation through you, Jesus, we accept that that is good. And that's not always easy to accept, is it not? So do what he says. Now, verse 6. Now there were six stone water pots standing there for the Jewish custom of purification. They're containing two or three measures each. Uh, So think of how big these are. These are uh, stone jars that probably held somewhere between like 15 and 20 gallons of water. So think of a five-gallon bucket. You got three or four of these in each. And they're standing there. 
and they're for the custom of Jewish purification. And Jesus says to the servants, fill the water pots with water. So they filled them up to the brim. Now, pause right there for a moment. Interesting that he didn't go to the empty wine jars. He didn't go to any sort of, you know, the drink station that had the water sitting there. He went to these ceremonial pot or these pots that were used for ceremonial cleansing water. This is water in the Jewish tradition that would have been used and blessed and used to wash your hands as an outward symbol of being purified. Uh, It also would be used to cleanse the the drink, the cups and the plates to to purify them. And it was purely uh, ceremonial. And it was part of that Jewish tradition and custom of saying, like, we, we can't do this until we are clean. In fact, we have later on, there's a story of a parable where the disciples apparently go in and they start eating without going through the proper ceremony of cleansing their hands. And the Pharisees looked at Jesus and say, what kind of disciples do you have? They don't even wash their hands the right way. They're supposed to do it for 20 seconds while singing happy birthday and then a little Purell at the end. What are, what are they doing? Sorry, got to go, you know, last couple of years, it's ingrained in us. So these same pots that brought that water were the water that Jesus says, we're going to use those. We're going to use those. These stone pots that are all about your ceremony and all about your religion and all about if you don't do this right, you're not holy enough, you're not pure, you're not clean. I'm going to use those pots. So go fill them. And they fill them up to the brim. And then we see Jesus says to them, verse 8, draw some of that water out now and take it to the head water, head waiter. So they took it to him. And when the head waiter tasted the water, which had become wine, he did not know where it came from. And the servants and the servants who had drawn the water knew. So in this moment, what happens is Jesus takes this water, they fill up the water, he turns it into wine, and he doesn't say anything. The servants take it to the head waiter, and he says, what the heck is this? Where did you get this wine? Now, this is kind of a bizarre miracle, isn't it? Who does this miracle help? Who benefits? I guess the the hosts, right? Right? He spared them some embarrassment. So, so is that a miracle? God, could you just please not embarrass me with this? You know, is that, is that a, a legit prayer? It's a legit prayer. <laughs> he may not always answer that. <laughs> so it's kind of interesting. But Jesus uses this moment, and I don't think it's about the wine. I don't even think it's about the wedding. You're going to see the symbolism of wine in a minute. But the first thing was, hey, these jars, this religion, this outward stuff, it's not enough. This is where we see Jesus, this miracle is about the insufficiency of their religion. He's saying everything that you're doing to try to be holy and, and made right and in the eyes of others, it's, it's not gonna, it just doesn't work. And so now if the hour has come for Jesus and he is now inaugurating this new kingdom and his miracles, it's the beginning of his whole mission Make no mistake that from the very beginning, religion is not going to be the key. And here's one thing I love. It's just a small little note I noticed this week. Notice how full the servants fill these jars. 
to the brim. Now, if you fill it to the brim, there's no room to add anything to it. You can't put some Kool-Aid mix in. You can't mix it in with some other wine. There's no, no tricks can happen. What happened is this water wasn't, nothing was added to it. It was transformed. I believe there's a, a little bit of symbolism here. If Jesus is not coming to add something to your life, he's not coming to add more religion, to add more things to do. He's coming to transform us. He wants to take who we are and do a work in us that utterly transforms us without adding more stuff to your, to your daily list of how do I become spiritual. Jesus uh, shares uh, this parable in Luke chapter 5. In uh, verse 30, we'll jump down to verse 37. And this comes after some of the Pharisees were questioning Jesus with his disciples and they say, why do your disciples not fast like ours do? Why are your disciples not doing all the religious things we're asking them to do like our disciples do? Why are your disciples so different? And Jesus goes and he says, well, because the groom's with them. But now in verse 37 of Luke chapter 5, look what he writes. He says, no one pours new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the new wine will burst the skins and it will be spilled out. And the skins will be ruined. But the new wine must be put into fresh wineskins. No one, after drinking the old wine, wants the new, for he says the old is fine. Now, this is one of those kind of interesting statements that Jesus has made uh, in Scripture, and we have to try to figure it out. But there's this new wine, and, and wine, what he's referring to is wine that has not yet fermented. He's saying no one takes unfermented wine and puts it in these old wineskins because as it ferments, it's going to put off, uh, make, put off these uh, gases and it's going to expand. So if you put them in old wineskins that have already been stretched to capacity, the new wine's going to burst them and break them. So if you have new wine, you put it in new wineskins and as it ferments, the new wineskins expand. So he uses that analogy and here's a couple ter interpretations. The first one that we believe, the most common one is this. Jesus is saying you were, the Pharisees had brought this new way and added religion to everything. So you have to do this. Here's your traditions. If you don't do this right, you've got it wrong. And so the Pharisees have brought all this tradition into their faith. And it's become part of just the way to do things. And, Je and so they're questioning him, Jesus, why don't you do things the way we do it? Now, most of the Pharisees' laws had nothing to do with Scripture. They were add-ons. And Jesus was saying, this is why it's so hard for you because what I'm doing is bringing this new covenant. The old is gone. And if you try to put anyone who's stuck in those old ways and the way I'm doing things now, it's just gonna burst. You're stuck. And he said, you had the old wine. You think it's good enough. So Jesus, this whole statement of old wine and new wine is saying, there is a new, a new way of living and I'm bringing it. It goes against your traditions. Now, some people believe that with that, he's actually speaking directly just to the Pharisees, which I tend to like that one. And he's not saying, however, because in the second century, there's some people who said what Jesus was doing is saying the whole Old Testament is irrelevant. So let's not make that mistake. I don't believe Jesus is saying the Old Testament is irrelevant. In fact, he would say, I come to fulfill it. And the Old Testament has pointed to me. And I'm the fulfillment of all of that. But you've got these traditions now, and you cannot accept this, this interpretation of the faith that I'm bringing to you. 
So in that statement, with that, we see that Jesus keeps using that analogy of that there's, religion is not going to cut it for you. Uh, let's go back into John chapter 2. So the, uh, verse 8, they draw the water out. Verse 9, uh, the headwater tasted the water. It became wine. He didn't know where it came from, but the servants who drew the water knew. And the head waiter called the groom, and he says to him, Every man serves the good wine first. And when the guests are drunk, then he serves the bad wine. <laughs> but you've kept the good wine till now. Isn't that funny? It's like, once they don't know what they're drinking, that's when you bring out the boxed wine. <laughs> Which some of our, you know, young adults are like, well, we, no, boxed wine's fine. That's where we start, right? <laughs> I love, it's just such an interesting thing. It's like, what? Why'd you bring the good wine? So not only did Jesus turn the water into wine, but he gave them good wine, excellent wine. So what's going on here? I believe this miracle is really about Jesus making a second statement. And he's using the wine as an analogy. It's something about this life that he's going to offer. And, and here I believe that this is where we see that second thing. Where Jesus is saying that the abundance of life that he's bringing is offered to all. Why do I think that? Throughout the scriptures, wine is used as a symbol of God's abundant blessing. We have it all the way from the beginning. In fact, in Genesis chapter 49, there's uh, this blessing that Jacob is giving to his kids. And one of his kids' name is Judah. And Judah is the one in which through the Messiah would be born. So there's a prophecy being prayed over Judah. We know that King David came from the, the line of Judah. And Jesus is in that same lineage, which is why we have the song, the Lion of Judah is about Jesus, the Messiah. Now in Genesis chapter 49, when he's praying this blessing, he's actually talking about uh, the Messiah coming, and verse 10 it says that the scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet. In verse 11, he says this, he will tether his donkey to a vine, his colt to the choicest branch. He will wash his garments in wine and his robes in the blood of grapes. Now, if you're like me and have read this multiple times, you just go, great, okay, whatever. But upon further examination, this is actually a prophecy of the abundance of blessings that's going to come through the Messiah in the line of Judah. To have this, oh, there's so, this wine is flowing. You attach your, who would attach your colt to a grapevine? You might destroy it, but there's so much abundance of it. Who would wash your garments in wine? First of all, that's not very effective, uh, but second of all, pretty wasteful. And this is just saying there's so much God's blessing will be outpouring through this Messiah, the abundance. And when I talk about abundance of blessing, I'm not talking about money. I'm not talking about possessions. I'm not talking about big houses and cars. What I'm talking about is the spiritual blessings that are poured out through the Messiah. So when Jesus uses this idea of turning water into wine, there's this symbolism that the Jews would hear and see what is it about the wine? In fact, in the book of Amos, which I know many of you probably were reading this morning, uh, it's what we call one of our minor prophets. 
It's this prophecy about when the Messiah comes and says this in in verse 13, uh, the mountains will drip of sweet wine and the hills will flow with it. Again, referring to, there's just this spiritual blessings that are going to be poured out when the Messiah comes. So what we have here is this imagery of the wedding feast. or At the wedding feast, this imagery of wine. And Jesus is saying, the religion that you think is making you acceptable in the eyes of God is over. So for any of us who are here today and we're feeling guilt, we're feeling shame because we haven't done enough, because we're not religious enough. Oh, you forgot to pray this week? Which, by the way, we're doing our 714 challenge. So every day at 714, set your alarm. We'd love to pray together as a church. If you haven't done that, it's okay, but start this week. Some of us maybe feel guilt because we haven't done enough for God. We had a hard week. Sin was raining. We fell short. The religion is not going to make you acceptable in God's eyes. But who will is Jesus. And the abundance of the spiritual blessings that he wants to pour out on us is coming from him. Not from you. Not from something you have to do. It is from Jesus who wants to pour out his goodness to you. Verse 11 of John chapter 2 as we land the plane here today. says this. John ends this and he goes, this, is, this beginning of his signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee. And re- he revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. Isn't that kind of funny? This is the beginning of the signs that you're going to see in scripture that John's going to write about. The first one was the, this water into wine. He revealed his glory. So in this act, there was something about the image and likeness of Jesus that now is on display. His power, but also his goodness poured out. And his disciples believed in him. Isn't that kind of funny? Don't you think it should be Jesus sat down and said, let me walk you through the scriptures and show you how the prophecies pointed to me and all this. And no, it was, here, drink this wine. They're like, oh man, I believe in you. That's amazing. <laughs> that, that was pretty cool. Obviously, there's so much going on here. After that, they went down to Capernaum, he and his mother, his brothers, and his disciples, and they stayed there a few days. And that's it. That's how the story ends. As we end and the worship team starts making their way back up, the question for us today to deal with is this. Is Jesus enough for you? Is Jesus enough for you? Or do you need something else? Is it Jesus plus church attendance? Is it Jesus plus praying enough? Is it Jesus plus reading scriptures all the time? Jesus plus doing community serve day so you did something good? Now, all those things I just mentioned are good, and all of those things, I believe, are part of a life of a disciple. So I believe that we should be doing this, gathering together and worshiping and learning scripture and studying on our own and praying and all of those things. None of those are enough to make you right in the eyes of God. But Jesus is more than enough. Is he enough for you? Can you rest in his goodness? Do you turn to him with just gratitude and say, Jesus, thank you that you 
are enough for me. That as we saw in the first three weeks, that you are the Lamb of God who came to take away the sins of the world and to give me life. And all of the things that I do to try to make myself right in your eyes, would you forgive me for those? and Help me rest in your sufficiency. And all the hypocrisy, all of even the legalism, all of my own pharisaical beliefs, all the times I judge someone else because they're not as religious as I am, would you forgive me for that? Would you help me just to rest in you and point others to you, the one who is overflowing with abundance? As we end our time, I want to invite you to stand with us, and we're going to sing one last song. And as we sing this song and just turn our hearts, let's turn it to just that response of the one who is the giver of all good things has given to us. So our hearts now are in response to who he is. And so today as we sing, as we worship, as we go through our days, it's resting on the goodness of Jesus. The one who would do something as unnecessary as taking water and turning it into wine to show us that in him, He wants to pour his life out for you and for me. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much for this morning. I thank you for the reminder of the abundance of your spiritual blessings that you pour out on us. I thank you for the reminder that religion will never be enough. God, that you are all we need. So today we turn our hearts to you. Would you fill us with you? Would you forgive us for the times when we make more of ourselves than we should? And God, help us make much of you in this place. We give you our hearts now, in Jesus' name. Amen.